mass philanthropy, the small donations and events, they dominated the fundraising activities of women for the past 200 years. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. This podcast was brought to you by Oak Maple Finance. At Oak Maple, our fiduciary, heart-centered approach means letting go of one plan fits all advice. Our process is simple. You talk, we listen. You get financial guidance customized to your specific needs because we know that life is better when your financial plan fits you. Visit our website at oakmaple.com. This is Kathleen Burns Kingsbury with the Breaking Money Silence podcast. I am very excited to continue our series on women and philanthropy. Today, we are going to be talking about philanthropy, the history around women and philanthropy, and talking a little bit about how you can have an impact. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Karen McNeil. She is currently the Director of Human Capital at JFG Wealth Management. She is a trustee on the board of the Beverly Willis Architect Foundation, and her scholarly work focuses on women and gender in the architectural profession and how progressive era women used the built environment to expand their roles in society as consumers, reformers, educators, and professionals. Karen was nice enough this summer to help me out uh, getting ready for a a presentation I was uh, doing. So I'm really excited to uh, get to delve a little bit into her expertise because she was so helpful. And so we're going to discuss the historical roots in philanthropy and how you can carry on the tradition in your own life, no matter what your economic status. So welcome, Dr. McNeil, to the podcast. Thanks, Kathleen. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to, uh, you're, you have so much knowledge behind you. I'm ready to kind of delve in and, and hopefully our listeners will learn so much. Uh, I want to start with a really, really simple question. I just want to know how you define philanthropy. I define it very broadly. I define it as any donation of time, talent, and or money to an organization with no expectation of return, except to help to contribute to the well-being and betterment of the community, however you define well-being, betterment, and community. Excellent. So in other words, you don't have to be very affluent to participate in philanthropy, because I know some people just think, oh, I have to be really wealthy, otherwise I can't participate. And what you're saying in your definition, I'm assuming that answer is no. Absolutely. Completely. We'll come back to that a bit later, I imagine. Okay, great. So tell me a little bit about why you believe 
women are so passionate about using their money to have an impact in the world around them. We all know that women uh, tend to be charitable. Research shows that they tend to be really interested uh, in impact investing and charitable giving. And so why is that? So it's important to note that whatever I say may resonate beyond North America and Western Europe, but my expertise and perspective definitely emanates from those regions with the American experience being paramount. So with that caveat, I will begin. So I'd say it's a combination of, of nature and nurture over the past two centuries. You know, two centuries ago, with a rise of industrial capitalism and the market revolution and cities and this sort of separation of work from home, you know, men started going out to work and away from the, the home or the farmstead, motherhood was placed on a pedestal like it had never been before, and the duties encompassed social and moral reproduction. So during that period, throughout the 19th century, and you know, 20th century and beyond, women always have worked and generated income, but quote unquote, respectable opportunities were limited legally and culturally, especially for married women. The most common way to be active outside the home was through charitable activities. And this would begin, say, in the 1830s with benevolent societies along the cities that were growing up along the Erie Canal. You know, they were often attached to the church. And then um, the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Young Women's Christian Association, or YWCA, they grew enormously during the 19th century. Civic housekeeping was an acceptable way for women to be active outside the home. And this encompassed things like building playgrounds, supporting schools, creating recreation centers, beautification programs like tree planting campaigns, settlement houses were enormously important. And even, you know, like Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which after the Bible was the best-selling book of the 19th century, it was directly tied to abolitionism or the moral imperative to end slavery. So actions have always been tied to social impact. And Barriers to financial independence remained enormous throughout most of the 20th century, which furthered a culture of choosing careers, volunteer activities, philanthropy that, that centered around social impact. So one of the questions I have is, and you may not have an answer, but when you say acceptable or respectable, is there a, a thread as to what was, you mentioned some great examples, but, but what would be not respectable work outside the home for a woman or a way to contribute? So prostitution is the classic one. Okay, and that's obvious. <laughs> yeah, that's the obvious one. And the rates of like prostitution in New York City in the 19th century are staggering. But labor, like physical labor. So, you know, so you'll see so many... Um, women, like Irish women, come to the United States in the 19th century as servants. They were automatically lesser than working class. African-American women were unlikely to be able to engage in so-called white-collar, even pink-collar work. They would be, again, domestic servants or, you know, before the end of slavery, 
you know, in the fields picking cotton, you know, it'd be hard labor, physical labor that was less respectable. And then there are all sorts of codes related to women's work, like women would be working near bars and that would be a code that they weren't just being waitresses, but there could be some other job back to prostitution on the side. So things like that, the respectable careers that women could pursue before marriage usually was teaching increasingly. By the late 19th century, sort of doctors began to kind of replace midwives, but nursing was appropriate. Social work was respectable, respectable, again, often before marriage. Once women married, working was simply rarely acceptable, working for a wage. And do you think that was related to man's role as, or men in their role as uh, providers and how that was really important for the men to be providers. And then the women didn't have the financial independence, but I think figured out how to have some independence, even though they weren't the breadwinners. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, as much as uh, motherhood was placed on a pedestal, you know, there were pressures around manhood as well. And it very much related to the kind of work you engaged in and how well you were able to provide for your family, absolutely. So if you look back, how do you think the women that did have financial resources, even though they weren't you know, the ones calling the shots, so to speak, how do you think they were able to support the causes? Now, first of all, it was okay to support these types of causes because it was considered acceptable, but how else did they do it? Because it strikes me as, you know, it's not like they could write a check. They didn't have right. access to the money. That's right. I mean, it was all legacy that continues today around a collaboration and pooled resources. So you would have a handful of independently very wealthy women who could make a big impact on, on their own. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and two names that loom large are Phoebe Hurst and Jane Stanford, who almost single-handedly bankrolled the rise of UC Berkeley and Stanford um, to internationally re renowned research institutions of, of higher learning. But a far more common reality was a collaborative approach to charitable activity. And you would have women from middle class on up volunteering time, talent, and resources at various levels. If you think about it, even today, mass philanthropy Going back to your first question about what is philanthropy, mass philanthropy, the small donations and events, they dominated the fundraising activities of women for the past 200 years. And, you know, small donations, events, rummage sales, bake sales, all sorts of things. But that doesn't mean the results were small. For example, uh, this is true in so many cities that women established some of the first hospitals and some of those hospitals are still in use or the, the land use of where the initial hospitals were is still related to medicine and, and health. And I, this is probably true in so many cities that your listeners live in. I mentioned the Women's Christian Temperance Union or the YWCTU uh, and the YWCA they were huge organizations, national organizations that had complex programs and hierarchies and 
all sorts of things. So, so this collaborative approach of pooled resources did not translate into, you know, small potatoes. This was, this was a big deal. And it was really organized. You know, these organizations, they professionalized over time as well, small and large. They often conducted reviews of how well the programs were working and better decisions that they could make so that they could achieve the goals. So they didn't have money to waste. So they were very deliberate about what they did with their, with their money, which again, aligns to something you'll hear today about sort of aligning your values or strategy to your money decisions. And women have been doing that all along. I always think women were so kind of crafty to figure out ways around and ways to have an impact. And uh, even nowadays, you know, but one of the things that stands out for me as you're talking about this, and it could be because I haven't really delved deep into the, the history around philanthropy, but I don't feel like those stories of women and philanthropy have been told as much as you hear stories of men around that time period making a real impact in industry. Um, I know yeah. maybe in the last 10 years, a little bit more so, but it's kind of like her story is kind of so lost compared to hearing the stories of men. Oh, I know. I think that's true. I think, you know, you're more likely to hear about Andrew Carnegie and the gospel of wealth as the origins of American philanthropy, which, you know, the kind of um, fortunes that the industrial capitalists and, and bankers of the late 19th century had the, you know, the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's, et cetera, had was astronomical and they were able to, you know, build universities and other things, but, but that's not where philanthropy began and it overshadows so much philanthropy, including this enormous amount of work that women were doing at the same time before and after and since. Yeah, I have to tell you, I didn't know that there were a lot of hospitals that were founded by yeah. women doing philanthropic work. And I think that's fascinating. For people who want to read a little bit more about that, are there any books or, or recommended resources? You know, we can certainly put that in the show notes if anything comes to mind now or, or after uh, our interview is over. Uh, sure. So a couple of books that come to mind. One is Seeing with Their Hearts. And you'll have to look up the, um, the author for that one. Abigail Van Slyke, she wrote about the Carnegie Libraries, where you'll see the story about, you know, Andrew Carnegie and his philanthropic empire, but women actually turning the Carnegie Libraries into what they were through use. And so it's that everyday community-based use of the libraries. And then I've published around this too. I've published a few articles, but the one that would be most useful is uh, called Women Who Build, Julia Morgan and Women's Organizations, 1902 to 1932. So Julia Morgan is an architect most famous for designing Hearst Castle, but the vast majority of her work was with connected to the California Women's Network and a bit beyond and how, you know, the wives, mothers, sisters, daughters of the financial, political, intellectual, cultural leaders of California used their position of financial resources and uh, social status to have an impact on their communities. So this whole thing around the charitable landscape and Phoebe Hearst specifically, but the 
small donors to the large donors is is embedded right in that that work around um, Julia Morgan that I've done. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. We'll definitely put those in the show notes. And so we have this history that you're kind of bringing to light around women and charitable giving. And it's not just necessarily a lot of resources. It could be, but it also could be time and talent. I want to flash forward to today. So women who are listening today, who are interested in engaging in more philanthropy, maybe taking their charitable giving to the next level, whatever that means for them. What tips do you have for women out there on being able to move that goal forward for themselves? So the first thing I want to to say and reiterate is that there's no bad way to give. However, every organization will appreciate your time, talent, and or money, however much that may be. But as your giving grows, you may want to be more strategic and be more deliberate around your values, for example. You may want to give more to fewer organizations that are really having the impact you're hoping to support. You might think about the type of vehicle you want to use, shifting from checks to, say, a donor advised fund, or if you really have the resources to private foundation, which is pretty rare, but but definitely an option for some people. And when you have really big sums to donate, consider how cumbersome you want the process to be on your end and on the, the recipient's end, and work with a philanthropy advisor to figure out the best plan for you. The philanthropic world is massive and potentially very complex. So, so work with an advisor um, or team of, of advisors to figure out the best way for you to be the kind of philanthropist you want to be. Those are great tips. I'm going to go back just for people who don't understand what a donor advised fund is. Can you define that, please? A donor advised <laughs> fund is a bucket of money that um, it's an investment vehicle, but it, it allows for privacy. It, it allows for far less paperwork than like a private foundation, but it's a bucket of money that you set aside and you get your tax donation um, with it when, when you fund your, your donor advised fund and you work with, there's a separate entity that's managing the donor advised fund and you say when you want to donate from it and it offers a lot of um, privacy and also um, it's an investment vehicle as well. Yes, and, and we can certainly put a link or two to, for people who want to know about that, but it is a, a strategy that some people use um, along with typically their financial advisor. So, mm-hmm. so Karen, when we're thinking about um, tying our values to our giving, can you just give me an example maybe of how someone might do that on a very simple level? Just like it's me. I don't have a lot to give. Maybe I want, I have some time. Maybe I have a couple of thousand dollars. So it's not a lot of money, relatively speaking, but it's a lot for me. How might I look at my values and decide, oh, I'm going to tie those values to what I'm doing from a charitable standpoint? Yeah. You know, I'll just, I'll just uh, lean into a couple of things going on right now. This morning in my world, my my son just went off to high school. He started ninth grade today. Oh, congratulations. Education. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that reminds me that education is very, very important to me. And if I think about, well, where can I have an impact on education? His school. 
you know, I can take that $2,000 and put it into his school and they will uh, be able to fund various extracurricular activities, the library, tutors, any number of things. It can be very, very local. I also, I, I, I have a puppy sleeping in the room with me. Oh, a puppy. And you're killing me, Karen. I, I, want, I do. I, I value all of these things that you're valuing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so maybe that leads me to um, animal welfare. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the local SPCA is right down the street. So maybe I can go volunteer there or see how they can help. Is, is my money the thing they need most? I'm sure they would love it. But also maybe I have some time to help them get the word out about adoptions or to, to walk the dogs and stroke the cats. So you can start really, really local. Just look at your immediate world and think, how can I expand this beyond my house so that more a bigger community community can can benefit. It can start as simply as that. Well, and what I like about that and, and what I do with my clients when I'm doing money coaching is have them do a values exercise to get to kind of their core values. Um, what I like mm -hmm. about that is it's it's kind of like a day in the life of look around what's important to you, what brings you joy, and then how you might you connect that to giving your time, talent, or some resources. And uh, it's a very nice, simple strategy that I think any of us certainly can implement. Now, I know for yeah, people- Yeah, and it doesn't take very long. No, no. And, and the other thing I want to say is, you know, sometimes people say, well, if I can't write a check, well, I know nowadays, it's certainly where I live in Vermont, there is a great need for help. So the idea of going to a shelter and helping out may even have greater value. I mean, of course, they'd love a check, but may even have greater value in the short run because they're so short-handed. So those are, those are really excellent ideas. Now, for people who are either listening in who are financial advisors, and I do have a lot of listeners to the Breaking Money Silence a podcast that do work in that field, are there any suggestions on how to more, work more effectively with women? Because I know this is something that's being talked about a lot recently. And we all know that historically, the advising field hasn't done such a great job with women. They're doing much, much better over time. But what tips might you have for an advisor listening in? So my top one would be work with women's culture around money rather than fight it. For example, women make up 70% of participants in giving circles likely because women have given collectively and collaboratively forever. So watch and listen for giving circle opportunities. Realize that women are driving impact investing. Now, this may be nature, the idea that women are more socially aware and empathetic. But as one study, a recent study notes, it may be that women see an opportunity in impact investing. It's relatively new, so they have the chance to make their mark and be leaders in, in that field of investing. Listen, ask questions. What is motivating your clients? What are they hoping to accomplish through philanthropy, impact investing, or other investing? And also, women like research, information, and combining a social aspect to their education. So organize smaller, intimate educational events where women can learn, voice their questions, find people to invest with, or decide how they might want to act alone. 
And the community piece is so strong. Like if you think back, what you started talking about historically was the idea of coming back, coming together collaboratively. And you're right. A lot of what I teach advisors about is, uh, and I like the way you framed it, of don't fight their culture, like embrace it, learn about it. And I do think coming together in smaller, intimate groups can be really useful because a lot, not all women, as we know, but a lot of women like to kind of talk it through with a, mm -hmm. a group of like-minded uh, people. So th those are great tips. Time goes so quick. We have a lot more that we could certainly learn from you. Um, but if you had to leave the audience just with one tip around women and philanthropy, I know that's a hard question for some guests, uh, but what would it be and why? What would this one piece of advice be? Well, despite everything I've said through this conversation, my one tip would be don't make assumptions. You know, advisors get to know your clients as individuals first. Women, like anybody else, don't want to be pigeonholed or stereotyped. They want to be seen and heard for who they are first. So that would be my my number one tip. So that would be a tip for advisors. Do you have a number one tip for women listeners? Oh, believe in yourself. <laughs> I mean, yep. You know, you are not a novelty act. I think that's the other thing around this theme around women and wealth and stuff is that very often women are treated as, as novelty acts. And, and as I said, you know, women have been making financial decisions for a long, long time. So it's just the rate of accumulation of wealth and, and uh, access to wealth and access to decision-making and stuff that's really accelerated in recent decades. But be confident. You, you are smart. You can make decisions and people are out there to uh, answer your questions and, and be there with you when you need them and want them. Well, I am so glad that I got introduced to you, Karen. You are a wealth of information and such interesting uh, historical perspective on women in philanthropy and some very useful tips for uh, today. So tell us a little bit more about where we can find out about you and the firm that you work with. All right. So I can be found on LinkedIn. Just be sure to spell my last name with two L's. So M-C-N-E-I-L-L. -L. And uh, I come up a lot in Google searches as well. And the company is JFG Wealth Management, which is jfgwealth.net. Awesome. Well, definitely, I encourage people to go check out what Karen is up to uh, and uh, definitely connect with her. And I can't wait to read some of your resources, and I hope folks will do the same. Thank you so, so much for breaking money silence with me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been fun. This podcast was brought to you by Oak Maple Finance. At Oak Maple, our fiduciary heart-centered approach means letting go of one plan fits all advice. Our process is simple. You talk, we listen. You get financial guidance customized to your specific needs because we know that life is better when your financial plan fits you. Visit our website at oakmaple.com. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app 
and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com. Thank you.